Manaso. So this morning we return to the fourth immeasurable. And I trust it becomes increasingly apparent that the the fourth one really is the grand finale. It's the the fulfillment. It's like the great perfection of the first three. Anything but a kind of a footnote or kind of something a little bit less. It's actually the fulfillment that subsumes all of them and brings them all to their full flowering. So Tangnyom, it's a very simple term, Tangnyom in Tibetan, or Peksha in Sanskrit. But there's a theme that runs through really all of the Buddha Dharma, and it's kind of crystallized here in a way, and that it's this theme of equality, of equipoise. There are a number of terms in Tibetan and Sanskrit that always come down to this theme, middle way, equipoise, balance, equanimity, that evenness, evenness, it would be Nyambanyi in Tibetan, evenness. Absolutely central, as you know, in, in Dzogchen. It is the culmination of Dzogchen, of seeing the equal purity of even samsara and nirvana. That's quite unimaginable. But that's exactly what the, uh, the culmination entails. And so this evenness, or this another very nice term, I think it's quite an elegant term, symmetry, that we've now encountered a number of times in some of the most cutting-edge modern physics, quantum, quantum cosmology, and one, you, to use a bit of the modern terminology, I don't see any reason why not. It's not new agey or anything. It's really quite accurate. One can say that the, um, the whole of Dharma practice is restoring symmetry, where there's imbalance, where there's fragmentation, where there's crystallization, right? And so keeping, not veering very far away from this fourth immeasurable, you know, good old-fashioned foundational Buddhism, uh, that is central, it's foundational to all schools of Buddhism, and it's really foundational, I think probably one could say, to all spiritual traditions. I mean, which one doesn't emphasize the importance of unconditional compassion, unconditional love. As soon as it's unconditional, then it's even, which means there's a symmetry there. Eh? But if we look at the, some of the broken symmetries, let's take the one that's the most obvious on the surface and directly pertinent to this fourth immeasurable of even-heartedness or equanimity, of course, as it states in the liturgy, it is this asymmetry, this imbalance or brokenness, this fragmentation <laughs> of attachment, of preference, of caring, and so forth, for those who are close, who are near, that is mine, and then the aversion to those who seem to be not mine on the other side, and so maybe a problem. And so there's a broken symmetry. And as I mentioned, seems like a long time ago, when Geshe Rappan first taught me meditation, this was one of the two practices he taught me. He said, this is a source of, you know, I don't know if he said all, but certainly a major part of individual problems just in the course of one individual life trajectory. Look, and you, you can trace it, you can find it there. But if we, all the way up, all the way up to look at international relations and so on, it's everywhere. Attachment to one's own side, aversion to the other side. And then, always, the, the lines are imaginary. The lines between the United States and Mexico, the lines between North and South, North and South America, Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere, there's lines all over the place. And those lines exist only in the space of our mind, because you can never find them. They're not physical. The border between you and me, between subject and object, they're not physical, which means they're imaginary. right? And so there it is. This is the level that is explicitly addressed as we meditatively cultivate this even-heartedness, right? That even as we attend outwards, and again, it's not blind, it's not on putting on blinkers, it's not ignoring or pretending as if 
very real and important differences aren't there. Because I don't think authentic Buddhism ever entails cultivated ignorance. People do that, we know. They protect their ignorance fiercely sometimes without needing to elaborate. But that's not part of authentic Buddhist practice. And so there are differences and they don't go away. The differences are there from the Buddha side. Right? The Buddha too has this discerning primordial consciousness that distinguishes this person is more virtuous than that person. And the Buddha can recognize this person is more attractive than that person. The Buddha is not blind to that. Or the beauties of nature, and then some areas are really quite ugly, and so forth. So that none of that, one does not become oblivious to that aspect of reality. One still is aware of it. But when it comes to other sentient beings, we can focus primarily for the time being on human beings, uh, then one sees the differences in terms of just their pleasantness and unpleasantness or neutrality of appearances, but also how they are as sentient beings, as human beings. Some are virtuous, some are not so much. Some are quite evil in their behavior and attitudes and so forth. But that nyambanyi, this evenness, is acknowledging those, understanding those, understanding of all these differences, from a saint to a fascist, from you know the whole range, uh, that all of these differences are coming out of not the core. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. They're not coming out of the core. It's not because one has a better Buddha nature than another or that one has a better substrate consciousness than another. Because on that level, it's simple. But the substrate consciousness does get configured. As it's activated, it does get configured in different ways. right? So we try to see, we acknowledge the differences, we try to understand the differences. And as I did very briefly yesterday, f- tracking how far I felt very deeply similar, essentially identical, or like twin brother with the director of ISIS, you know, seriously, I mean, just, just disposition, like that kind of thing. But a bit more, it kind of went on several stages there. And then it started to get more and more and more different as, you know, we manifest in what, what is he doing today and what am I doing today? Well, that's very different. But it's all because of causes and conditions that are configuring and modifying, structuring, influencing something that was fundamentally the same. And if we can go down and now who it is, that's an extreme case, of course. But wherever we see that strong difference between oneself and anyone else, it's not to ignore the difference. It's not to pretend that if it's not that it's not important. But it is to see through, to bring intelligence to it, and say, yes, we're different here, we're different here, we're different here. Di- okay, now I just got the point where we're no longer different. And then just keep on going down from there, all the way down to Buddha nature. And that's your ground for developing equanimity. Right? But on that level, we're brothers. We're the same family. We're the same. So there that is. But then there's also this, so let's keep on looking at broken symmetries, and I'll try to keep this really concise, but it's a very, very rich field here for understanding and completely applicable to practice. But of course, here's another broken symmetry. Not only the broken symmetry, like them, don't like them, don't care. There's three broken symmetries. But I care about my side, but don't care about your side. Okay, that's a broken symmetry. My side, yes, your side, no. And so here we have a false symmetry. And the false symmetry is, okay, I've got that one figured out. I heard about that broken symmetry. You mustn't look upon some with attachment and aversion. Good, got it. I look upon all of you with equal indifference. <laughs> Problem solved. And now I'll just take care of myself, right? So that's a false, a false symmetry, right? It's cold. It's called aloof indifference. You know it well. The near enemy of the immeasurable equanimity. So a bland 
cool, uncaring going outwards. But of course, now I'm going to find my own liberation. I'm going to follow my own path. Uh, give me a little bit of food, please. That's all I ask. I'll make a prayer for you once in a while. But I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I'm on an express ticket to get out of samsara. Well, that's a broken symmetry, right? But then I was just reading up on this just a tiny bit this morning. Because, um, you know, if you're a monastic, you're a monastic. His Holiness feels a very strong resonance with monastics, whoever they are. When he meets with Christian monks, he met with one in Spain, been in retreat for, I think, 20 years or so. And he met with him, just one on one. This monk came out of retreat to meet with His Holiness. I think it was a retreat for both of them, actually. And His Holiness, uh, from what I I wasn't there, but I heard just had this profound sense of resonance. And also with Thomas Merton, when he first met him, maybe the first Christian monk he ever met. But that sound, profound sense of affinity, not ignoring all the differences of ideology and all that, of course that's there. But monk to monk, you know, and really feeling, oh, there's a real kinship here. And this, this Spanish monk that was in retreat for so long apparently just embodied loving kindness, just emanated loving kindness. Well, His Holiness is, does a bit of that himself. And so that's when monasticism shines, and it really often does shine. And then as Christian monks and nuns know, and Buddhist monks and nuns, and I'm sure others know, there's sometimes, especially if you're living in solitude, I just read up on this morning, you're living in solitude, you're a hermit, uh, that everything can kind of just go cold. Uh, some of you it happens, you know, for a day or two or longer during this retreat, where just all the wind goes out of the sails. The inspiration is gone, you just kind of feel dead, you don't feel motivated, you don't really want to go out and leave the retreat and make more money, or, you know, pursue samsara, but then this doesn't really have much appeal either. And you kind of like, it's really like being out in the middle of the ocean and all the wind is gone. You're in the doldrums. And there's, and it can go into, I just checked it out, it's called acidia. I knew the word before, but I just don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> acidia. Acidia, it's a very rich term from the Latin. And it is called spiritual sloth, where it's kind of now just an uncaring. And of course, it's kind of still uncaring about others. But now it's also an equal, it's a false facsimile, it's an equal uncaring about oneself, a listlessness it's called spiritual sloth, where you really can't even be motivated to arouse yourself for your own spiritual well-being, even for dharma, let alone go out and make some money. I don't think so. You know, So you're bored to death with samsara, but now you've lost all juice for dharma, and you're just kind of like there in the middle of the ocean, rocking. Acidia. <laughs> you know? And so this is, this is universal. Nobody's got a monopoly on that. The Christians knew about it. I'm sure the Hindus did. The Buddhists know about it, whether you're Mahayana, Vajrayana, what have you. So it's a, it's a false facsimile. It's another false, false, false facsimile. Now I don't care about anybody else, but I don't really care about me either. What's for lunch, but I don't really care. No, acidia. So again, it's even, but it's a false facsimile. Right? So we try to bring life to this, an evenness that is full, that's rich, that's warm. We can go back to a little bit now, we'll try to wrap this up pretty quickly. Broken symmetries, broken symmetries. Okay? Every, we, we experience it every time we fall asleep, every time we go deep asleep. You go into the symmetry, nyambanyi, of just your coarse mind dissolving into, into a substrate consciousness, substrate consciousness being immersed or swallowed by, in a way, the substrate. You're just going into the substrate. 
And the substrate is of the nature of unknowing, right? Madrikpa, unknowing. It's its nature. So its essential nature is unknowing. And what it does is it veils dharmadhatu. It veils this mere vacuity. It's something so close and yet completely veils the dharmadhatu, the absolute space of phenomena. And in that state, as we all know, because we've experienced it all the time, but we just don't know about it while we're experiencing it, uh, that there's no explicit knowing of anything. But then this means it's, it's perfect symmetry. There's no this or that. There's no good and bad. There's no me, no you. Uh, but it's inert. You rest in that and you're not going anywhere at all. You're just hibernating. So it's inert. But it is, that it, there is a symmetry there. You know, it's even. It's e- completely even. But it's unaware. So, what's that? So, that symmetry is broken by the substrate consciousness emerging, and where there's now this luminosity of substrate consciousness pervading the substrate. But then that doesn't last. That doesn't last. Because the symmetry is broken with that inevitable coagulation of self, that drawing forth over here, that klishtamana, nyuyi in Tibetan, where this kind of coagulation of a sense of rhyme, pr- raw, primal sense of I am over here, and space is over there. The substrate being over there, I over here. Very ill-formed, really, mm, I don't know, so primal. Uh, that's the best words I can find it, you know, because it's not articulate, it's not caught up in language and so forth. But there's a breaking of symmetry, right? Breaking, breaking of symmetry that becomes more elaborated when manas, mentation arises, and we start to differentiate different forms, sight, sound, and so forth, and then more crystallize the sense of, I'm the subject over here, I'm the, and that's the object over there. So broken symmetry, broken symmetry. Well, we know Vipassana is about, you know, coming back in there and exploring how this got fragmented. The deepest level, moving quickly, is something we introduced very briefly from the flight of the Garuda, where in the beginning, <laughs> almost like anathema in Buddhism, but in the beginning, before there was an even a differentiation of the, before even the words of samsara and nirvana mm, were present, any or to be found, this has to be poetry, but very meaningful poetry, because it is unimaginable. Light flows out from this primordial union of dhamma, dhatu, and, pristina, and primordial consciousness. And in an instant, Samatabhadra recognizes the light as Samatabhadra's own emanations and is instantly awakened uh, on the other, from one side. On the other side, there's a veiling of that and seeing appearances as other than oneself. And seeing that, then the ball continues rolling downhill. That is, it just gets colder and colder and colder uh, as symmetry, the dominoes start to fall. The dominoes really start falling. Uh, because the symmetries continue to break. So appearances are out there, then I'm in here, and then when seeing, and then they're veiled, and so the five facets of primordial consciousness now appear as the five, as the five of poisons, the five elements, and so on. And so the cultivation of equanimity, wrap it up here, almost wrap it up, uh, it goes very deep, all the way down, all the way down there. And then all the way up to here, I don't really like her, but I like him a lot. Right, way up there, you know. Then it struck me just something that came this morning, a little goodie this morning. Um, I was just thinking about history. I'm very interested in history because I, yeah, for, I don't know, I am. 
to some extent, I'm not with my history much, but images in the bigger picture. And if we think about most of the history of the human race and views that have formed in communities that have formed around views, like the Jews and the Philistines, you know, Old Testament, Jewish Bible, the Jews and the Philistines, other groups, uh, and they're just on. I don't, you, I don't need to fill in all the blank spaces since then, uh, or the early Vedic in India and so forth. If we look at the history, not only of religious groups, but ethnic groups, religion is not particularly the bad guy, it's just, it's just dominant, so it gets a lot of bad reputation. But religion, ethnic groups, people of different skin color, language groups, and so forth. And then nowadays, one of the more recent ones over the last 400 years is scientific groups here, religious groups there. Okay? And then there's a lot of overlap, Newton and many, many others. Um, but when we see this, this, all of this is a study in asymmetry, a fragmentation. You're not my skin color. Oh, your eye, your eye shape is different from mine. Your hair color is different from mine. Oh, you speak different language. You have a different religion. You have a different worldview. Oh, you're an atheist. I'm not. I'm this. You know, you're Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, and so forth. When we see this fragmentation, this breaking of symmetries. If we focus in on the point that so many again, secular people love to kick, and that is religion and religious strife and how we should have no more religion. In other words, they want to win. They want their religion to win the anti-religion religion. religion. Uh, if we look at the history of it, uh, let's say religious groups that collide, historically, as a religious study scholar, although not big on hi I haven't really studied history all that much, religious history, but it seems the tendency has been, the general trend for many, many centuries, is when there's a collision like this, the first thought may be, convert. You don't believe like me. You, you don't do my rituals. You don't do my practices. You don't agree to my ethics. So that's a problem. I'm feeling uneasy about this. So I have to convert you. Uh, if you like it, that would be nice. If you don't, well, that's too bad. But I need to convert you because I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable with this asymmetry. I feel comfortable with everybody around me being like me. And you're not like me. And so, first of all, try to convert peacefully, friendly, give them a sales pitch, or just hold a, you know, hold a sword at their throat and say, you do want to convert, don't you? you know, one way or another. Peaceful manifestation, wrathful manifestation, but convert it so you can be comfortable again. You restore your symmetry. The people around you believe like you do, and then we're comfortable. No threat, right? If they don't want to convert, then uh, kill them. Then you can feel comfortable again. A dead a dead enemy is not an enemy. They just kill them all. And then you can be comfortably, ah, good, now, now we have symmetry. Think about ISIS. If we can't convert them, kill them. Okay. Now, there's just too many to kill. I mean, it just takes too long. And maybe this, the economy would suffer, and maybe you need them, and so forth. If you just can't kill them all, then, okay, sigh. Okay, I'm disappointed, but we can still work with this. Subdue them enslave them, subjugate them, put, put them down where your feet are so you can, you can totally control them. So yes, you can live here, but know where, you, know where your position is. You're where my feet are. We're, we're clear now. Okay, I'm not terribly comfortable with this. I wish you were dead, but it's just not convenient or impractical. And so, okay, just stay there and, and this is tolerable. Okay, 
if that's not possible, if there's just too many of them, then ignore them. Then ignore them. Okay, there's your sector. You're in that sector. You're in the, the Jewish area. You're in the Christian area. You're in the, okay, you, you stay, in, stay in the Buddhist area. Stay there. Have your temples, whatever you need, but stay there and pipe down. And I can ignore you. Now I feel, I feel comfortable again. Okay, I can ignore you like you're not part of my world. And then you probably feel the same. Maybe we're just too, both of them too big. You can't subdue me. I can't subdue you. I can't kill all of you. You can't kill all of me. We don't want to convert to each other. So, okay, well, then just ignore. And then we can kind of be comfortable. Not very comfortable, but as comfortable as, as we can be given the unfortunate circumstances that I just can't kill you all. And that's exactly what science and religion have been doing for years now. 400 years. More like 150 since Darwin. Because until then, they really were really chummy. But when more scientific evidence was coming out that a literal reading of the Bible doesn't work, wasn't working out too well, then we remember top Thomas Huxley said, he never said, you know, kill everybody who's religious. He just said, convert them all. World domination of the church scientific. He said it, you know. And he is the founder of the, the eminent scientific journal called Nature. And their legacy carries on. Really, that legacy is there. It's scientific materialism. It's a church of scientific materialism. So he just wants to convert them all. That was his agenda. And they've done an incredibly effective job in so many ways without needing to elaborate. Uh, and so convert them all. Well, that's exactly so. But then when, when the church and state are united, as in the Soviet Union and the communist China, uh, if you can't convert them, then kill them. And that's what they did. The Soviet Union under Stalin, oh, I can't even count the number of people he killed because they were religious. Destroyed monasteries, killed monks, nuns, burned, destroyed temples, churches, and so forth. This, you can't convert them. If you can't make them communists, you can't convert them to atheists, and then kill them. And if you if you have the union of church and state, you can really do it very effectively. The Chinese communists have done that extensively. They did it in Mongolia when Mo Mongolia was communist. And uh, so just kill them all. This is now, you know, and rel religious people have been doing that to religious people, but now the, you know, the religion of the day is the anti-religion of atheism and, and communism. But if you can't kill them all, because you're not, like in communist China, the economy would go down. There are like 300 million Buddhists there. That wouldn't do well for the economy. They want to grow You can't kill all the Buddhists. So what do you do? And they, they didn't want to convert. Even after, what, 60, 65 years of communism, they still don't want to convert. Buggers, you know? Then subdue them, keep them in their place. If you can't convert them and you can't kill them all, then subdue them. And that's exactly what they're doing now, subdue them. Right to this day, like as in yesterday, they're going to Larungar, this fantastic community, with so many Han Chinese and Tibetans of all different sects, 40,000 of them. And they just a few days ago started coming, coming in and laying new, new rules down. Uh, you can't have any. You can't grow anymore. You can't have any more coming from outside this area. You can only come this area they want to subdue. They want to contain, contain. And when they contain it, then they ignore it. You know. So it doesn't matter whether you're atheist or this religion, that religion. That's what. That's what we do. There. It's kind of hearkening back to the good old days. That's exactly what ISIS is doing. Hearkening back to the Oda Gold. You know, the seventh century when things were good, and. You know, once the word had spread, it was homogenous. And now we have these, this modernity coming in and these Americans and Europeans, and it makes them very uncomfortable. It makes them really uncomfortable. This is not right. 
you know, these modern values, these atheistic values, materialistic values, anything basically non-Muslim, this just doesn't feel comfortable at all. Let's kill them all. If we can't kill them all, well, at least we can subdue them. And that's what you get if you're a Christian in that area. You first get killed, but you convert if you can. They're happy with that. But if not, kill them. But if you can't kill them, okay, maybe there's too many. Then you subdue them. And that's exactly what's happening here. So this, this is not something new. But now to move on and to wrap this up. This is, this is the way it's been in history. I mean, there's a long, long history, and religions aren't particularly the bad guys, just most people are religious, so most of the really crappy things that happen in history have to do with religion, just because religion's all over the place. So there's two ways of looking at this, and we see it happening right now, and that is, let's try to turn the clock back. I imagine there are Tibetans. They say, oh, let's try to turn the clock back before the Chinese invasion. Let's go back. I know there were, there were Kimbos and Geishis like this 20, 30 years ago. I think fewer now. That when His Holiness Dalai Lama was suggesting, you know, the monks, the nuns, they should learn English. They should learn English. A lot of the old Kimbos, when I was there, 1970s, no, 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 we don't want that. They'll distract them. They'll, they'll, get, they'll, they'll start getting these Western ideas. They're a bunch of materialists. They're not Buddhists. They're outsiders. We don't want our monks getting contaminated by learning English. This would be harmful. We want to go home. We want go home. Iti go home. Don't learn English. You'll get cooties. <laughs> don't learn science. Science is all materialistic. I don't want our monks learning. They might be tempted. Don't. No, 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 no. And His Holiness, you know, just yes, 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 yes. You cannot go home. There is the Tibet you left in 1959 doesn't exist anywhere in the universe. You can't go back there. It doesn't exist anywhere. So there's no going back. Some of you have really good meditation sessions. You know, How can I get back there? <laughs> Never happens. There's something about the asymmetry of time. If you become a Buddha, the time doesn't roll back and you don't become an un-Buddha. There is something about, even though they're taking place three times, this is not samsara. You don't become a Buddha and then get bored and then become a sentient being again. That's just more samsara. You know, this, there is some asymmetry here in the time itself, within the context of time. Of course, I mean, that's why it's called past, present, and future. That's an asymmetry. From the fourth time, perfect symmetry. But here's a point. Here's a point. In a, it's a historical point. But I think, in many ways, we really are in an unprecedented phase of human history. The worst of times, the best of times. The worst of times you can figure out. The best of times. There are quite a number of people, it's not only as holiness, but there are quite a number of people, a growing number of people, tiny minority, growing number of people among atheists and Muslims and Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and Taoists and so forth and so on that have matured as they're seeing the unrest, the imbalances, the terrible injustices and so forth taking place in the world, the many crises facing us. They're not thinking back to some symmetry from the past. Like Reagan, Ronald Reagan said, oh, when I was young, we didn't even, th we didn't even, we didn't even think that there wasn't even a problem of racism. When I was young, <laughs> I wasn't aware of racism, it wasn't a problem. Yeah, so, you know, because where he lived, you know, the blacks kept in their place. He could ignore them, because they knew their position. You don't want to vote, do you? I didn't think you wanted to vote. We're fine. You know, back in the 40s, it's not a problem, right? 
because we couldn't kill them all. We couldn't make them white. <laughs> Take a number of generations to do that. Mm. So subdue them. And that's what we did. Go to old America. We did that. Native Americans, and the list goes on and on and on. So, but they're, again, the awakened ones, the ones who are maturing, ones who are, it seems like we're actually evolving with intelligence and understanding, is recognizing there's no going back to any good, good old days, Tibet before the Chinese invasion, white, white bread America, when everybody was in their place, the Native Americans were stuffed away in their reservations, the blacks were taking their subservient role, and so forth. There's no going back. Don't really want to go back. In Tibet itself, there were many, many inequalities, many injustices. It was not even remotely a utopia. And all, all intelligent Tibetans know that. Well-informed Tibetans do. Uh, so it's not something to go back to. But here's the point, and I'll just, and then we go back to meditation. And that is envisioning a new type of symmetry. And it's not new, it's primordial. And the symmetry is the unity in the midst of diversity. The symmetry of just resting in the substrate is a unity within a unity. There's no diversity there at all, right? The unity within acidia of just resting in this even complacency, that's a unity within a unity. There's no diversity at all. I just don't care about anybody much, right? But this non-abiding nirvana of the Mahayana, the non-abiding, it's not resting in nirvana, which if that's your end game, that's an inert symmetry. It's not going anywhere. It's an inert symmetry. Often when you speak of just settling the body, speech, and mind in, its natural, in a natural state, I often have said, rest your body now in a state of dynamic equilibrium. In other words, please don't die. If you die, your body is steadied, rest, coming to come to rest in a state of equilibrium, equally dead, from the top of your head down to the soles of your feet, equally dead, totally relaxed. <laughs> but it's an inert symmetry, right? If you just fall deep asleep, okay, that's fine, but it's an inert symmetry. And here we're tr trying to do something consciously, that sense of ease, as if you were deep asleep, as if you tricked your body to go into going deep asleep with that breathing pattern, while remaining lucid, while remaining vividly aware. Right. Achieving shamatha, which is the end point of the dying process, where your mind slips into the substrate, right? It's the same place. So when you achieve shamatha, you've just, you're a corpse mentally, you're, you're in the shava, mental shavasana. Your mental shavasana, because you're dead. <laughs> you know, it's the dead posture of the mind, because it's died and gone into the grave of the substrate consciousness, which is where you are—that dark, you know, that black near attainment. And then we have these yogis, who, like Geshe Zopa and so many others, Chokyatijanabuchi and many, many others, even recently, many, many, who, when they die. They don't die in inert equilibrium. There they are, they're dead. No heartbeat, no brain state, almost certainly. And yet the body is not quite glowing, but it has a fresh complexion. There may be even warmth at the heart. They're neither living nor they're dead. It's a dynamic equilibrium. They are luminously aware. While outwardly, well, it's not really dead, because we know what dead bodies do. They decompose. 
And it's not that, it's not this. It's non-abiding, you're not really dead, you're not really alive. It's a non-abiding nirvana right there. So, what to look forward to? Now in, in history, in the flow of time where we are right now, there's no going back and we shouldn't. This is not an eternal return. It's an evolution forwards to envision a symmetry, and I'll say it in two ways. The wrong way, first of all, is to think, ah, I'm really smart, I'm really spiritual, I've got the best religion. I've got the best religion, because I see all the religions. Here's a new religion that's better than all the other ones, and this will unite everybody under my banner. This will be Alan Wallaceism, Wallaceism. You know, I make it sound really crazy, so nobody will take me seriously. But no, this is the super-religion. This is the super-religion. So stop being Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, all of that, because this is one, and this is the super-duper religion. This is the one that sees everything, and it sees science, and sees spirituality, and philosophy, and Wittgenstein, and Kant, and Plato, and everything, and this is the best one. So now everybody follow me, and stop what you are doing. Okay, that's the, that's the crazy way. Okay? So let's, let's see what the extremes are. That's the crazy way. How might there be something that has some of the benefits of that, the symmetry, without the craziness of it? Because that's crazy. Even if I were incredibly enlightened, it'd still be crazy. It's crazy no matter what. And that is eudaimonia. It's a nice, sweet term that doesn't arouse hackles, doesn't arouse resistance in anybody. You know, I really don't think it does. And if you translate it, genuine happiness. And then ask a Muslim, a Christian, an atheist, a scientist, a poet, a musician, a Taoist. Ask anybody. Genuine happiness, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Ask somebody in ISIS. Are you seeking genuine happiness? Happiness of the Lord? Happiness of the Almighty? Ask them, those who are just about to behead somebody else. And they say, yeah? But yeah, I think they would say yes first before they cut off somebody's head. Because they would like that too. So there's something that unite. It's not a new tradition, but it's something that is there that we all seek. And it's quite explicit, even now in science, modern psychology, positive psychology, and so on. So there's one point. Common ground, the symmetry, the even ground, something we can all resonate with. That's one point. And then the other one, that's more pragmatic. That's in terms of skillful means. And the other one... It's, ma it's a matter of wisdom. But it's one that I, I, I could say for myself, I'm all in. That is, I'll bet my life on this one. And that is, as I was doing my, you know, I was 20 years old, but doing my studies, I had nothing to do. I was only taking one course, Tibetan, because I dropped all my other classes. And I was just reading voraciously, like eight hours a day, for my year of solitude in Göttingen when I was 20, 21, and just trying to answer a question the great religious traditions of the world, the deeper you go, what happens? The deeper you, because they're different. Judaism, Buddhism, Buddhism, Christianity, they're just different. I mean, that's just the way it is. They are different. They're different in many, many ways. But in all of them, there have always been great contemplatives. People are not just passing on the, the tradition, the theology, the, and so forth. No, there are people who have gone into solitude. They've gone deep. In all of them, in all of them there are. And so for those, so let's ask those, those who are considered the great saints, the great, the great adepts, the great embodiments, the great contemplatives. And what do you say when you're coming out of your experience and not simply passing on your tradition and your ideologies and so forth, your views, 
And so as you go deeper, 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 you start out, they're really different. That's just the fact. Can't ignore that. But as you go deeper, here's the simple question. If you start just on the surface with just people who learn the creed and do the rituals, okay, that's nothing wrong with that. But then you go deeper to those who are really going for the experience. As you go deeper and listen to what they say, what they discover, does, does it remain just as different? Does it remain equally different the deeper you go? Does it get more different the deeper you go? The great contempt that it's just really at variance with each other. Or the deeper you, do, the deeper you go, do you find some convergence? That they, Their reports of their own immediate experiences seem to be more similar. And the deeper they go, more similar. The deeper they go, more similar. So it's simple geometry. The deeper you go, you, we know this tremendous diversity up there on the surface. There's just no question. But the deeper you go, does it get more at variance? Does it remain the same? Or does it converge? I think it has to be one of those three. And that was my question. If it's more at variance, my conclusion, my hypothetical conclusion at the age of 20 was, they're probably all wrong. Or why should I choose one of them? What, eeny, money, mine, money? Should I throw a dart? You know, I just didn't think I was up to it. So I thought, probably none of them are right. If the deeper they go, they're all saying different things. Probably then nobody knows what's going on. Which would be an invitation to acedia. But that's a possibility. It's possible that they just, they just stick to party line all the way down. And they're just saying the same thing when they go to the deepest realizations. They're holding to their guns all the way down. And it remained, they made just right where they were. The depths and the surface, complete reflection. They're really, really different. And which made my conclusion when I was 20 is they're probably, st they're probably all wrong. And I have no idea if one isn't, but I don't know. Then it's again, probably nobody who knows. And the third one geometrically is, not that they all come to the same point. I didn't need that. I needed to know, are they converging? Are they getting closer together? That was the only question. Because who am I to know? If we point to one yogi and that yogi and this Christian yogi and that Taoist, how am I possibly to know whether they're seeing the same thing, they're coming exactly the same realization? I'm not up to that. I don't have, I'm not that pompous. But I have enough intelligence to be able to see, are their reports of their experience, are they getting more similar? Are they staying the same? Or are they getting more dissimilar? That, I felt, was a question I could handle. And by the time I finished my years of study, I came to a conclusion I was willing to bet my life on, and I have been ever since. And that is a sense of convergence. And that got only reinforced as I, years later, went to graduate school at Stanford and taught for four years at University of California, studied more and more and more. It just seemed like, well, and then seeing even, you know, quantum cosmology, I didn't see that coming that we could say statements that sound like Nicholas of Cusa, or John Scotus Eriyujana, or, or Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, coming out of quantum cosmology. I didn't see that coming at all. But I did have an intuition that maybe physics would be worth studying, and that got me to that one, while I was still a Buddhist monk. So the point here now summing up is, what we may anticipate, what we can pray for, if this is worth praying for, is that now that we have unprecedented awareness of the diversity of views on the planet, this tremendous array of religions from which we can choose, as any, many of us, most of us can choose whatever we like. And then the more secular approaches and coming in from different branches of science. And of course, a myriad of philosophies, so many, such a rich bouquet, really, one can say. Within the midst of all of that, while acknowledging the diversity of it, can we at the same time, can we see a common ground in terms of wisdom Eudaimonia does, Eudaimonia does a great job in terms of skillful means, but in terms of wisdom, wisdom, 
can we see that sense of evenness, right? That kind of symmetry, that common ground. That yes, you're a Christian, yes, you're an Orthodox Jew, yes, you're, you know, whatever you may be. And we see the common ground and feel that sense of kinship, that equanimity. Can we see that? So this common ground in terms of skillful means, common ground in terms of wisdom. And then we can cultivate equanimity towards everyone, including their aspirations and their view of reality. And seeing there's common ground here, down here, it's common, it's the same. It's the same. But then not start stopping there. This is going to be the very next phase of our text. This is all woven in, by the way. It's one package deal. But where we're going next week in the text is beyond identification to practice. Identification is realizing your own pristine awareness. Practice is seeing all displays, all appearances, as displays of your pristine awareness. That is not separate. Your thoughts as displays, every thought being an experience a display, a manifestation of pristine awareness. So see the parallel, microcosm, macrocosm, that we're not only acknowledging and tolerant with or accepting, being friendly with, you know, the people with the different worldviews, traditions, and so forth, but we can see them all, in fact, as displays of that common ground, displays of the yearning for eudaimonia, which is relative bodhicitta, and displays of pristine awareness, which is ultimate bodhicitta. And we see them all contributing in their various ways. Multiple doors leading to the same. And so there's a profound sense of dynamic equilibrium that on the one hand, pristine awareness is timeless. On the other hand, here human society, civilization in relationship with the planet is evolving. And how are we evolving? Are we going into the great death of universal entropy, and we kill the planet, we kill it all, we kill it all, and it grows cold because we sucked it dry? Is that where we're going? Or are we going to restore balance with eudaimonia and seeing that hedonia is for the sake of eudaimonia, and then not only tolerating, but rejoicing in the diversity and seeing the diversity as diverse, like light refracted through a thousand-faced prism all expressions of the one, the one ground, and the one eternal longing. That would be unprecedented in human history. It hasn't happened yet. But there are people in science, people in Christianity, people in Judaism, people in Buddhism, and so forth, you know, to see that's the way ahead. That we actually don't try to convert each other, don't kill each other, don't subdue each other and don't ignore each other. We actually come together to learn from each other and to celebrate the differences, see the differences as displays of the divine while staying home and not trying to be put us all into a blender. <laughs> so we're all Alan Wallaceans. Bad idea. You know, then it goes back, in, that would be back to dead, inert symmetry. Oh, now we believe. Now we all believe the same. Oh, good. That's comfortable. You fall asleep. Now everybody believes the same. Everybody practices the same. Everybody says the same. Everybody says the same. This is boring as hell. There's nothing interesting. Nothing happening. Now everything's. I I won. And now everybody believes just like me. Oh man, this is boring to death. 
I think I'm going to fall into acedia. Okay? So something unprecedented. That's interesting, I think. That's never happened. Didn't happen in Tibet. Didn't happen in the West. Didn't happen in China. China was interesting. That was quite interesting, where Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism really had this wonderfully dynamic interrelationship with each other. It's really quite something of a model, actually. That Buddhism came in, and the Buddhists didn't try to kill everybody, and the Chinese who were not Buddhists didn't try to kill all the Buddhists, but how they kind of worked it out was, for my social relationships, I'm a Confucianist. For my health and longevity, I'm a Taoist. And for my future lives and for liberation, I'm a Buddhist. And now I'm relaxed. That's <laughs> not a bad model, right? So China, wake up, wake up. Come out of this fantasy realm of communism. It's not serving you well. Never served anybody well, not that version. And wake up to the richness of your own heritage. And invite the Dalai Lama to Tiananmen Square, where he can give the Kala Chakra empowerment. Now let's meditate. Well, just do, the, just do the, the liturgy. You can do the meditation on your own. You know what, what I would suggest? Settle, uh, and med meditate any way you like. <laughs> I think I can leave it right there. You, you've had so much now. You don't need me to tell you what to do. If you can't figure it out now, oh. Okay, let's just do our devotions and call it a morning. Namo lama deshe dupe ku kunjo sumge ranjin la datan odu senjen nam janju badu kapsu chi Namo in the lama who is the embodiment of the sugatas of the nature of the three jewels I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semkendoa kundun tu lama sangye dupneni Kangla Kandu Tinle Kindoandwa Damchao For the sake of all beings I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. Cham sam bema gesa dombola Yamsen choki mudubne bema june shesuta Kodu kando mambu ko keki jesu datuki 
Jinge Lapshi Shaksus Guru Pema Siddhi Hum Hum In the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is aroused by a host of Dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Bhemasiddhi Hum. Guru Pema City Home, and let's bring the session to a close. <laughs>